Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for your church, God. It's your church. This is your church. Even if we have um, people that are visiting here today that are part of your church somewhere else locally, we thank you for your church, Lord, your blood-bought, purchased church, a church that you're sanctifying, that you're making to become more like you, Lord, and there's so many people in this room that are in process. We're just, we come in broken, really messed up, probably hurt by uh, past church experiences, and I pray, God, that we would just understand that there is no perfect church, not until you gather your church and we're all around the throne of God worshiping you. We will not be perfect until then. But would you make us more perfect? Would you make us more like you? Would you sanctify your bride today? Would you cleanse your bride? And today I pray that you would get us all, if we confess you as, as Lord, that you would get us all on mission. And if we don't, that we would begin to see your heart, God, that we would see your heart for us. I mean, what is, what is man that you're mindful of us? I mean, you're God, and you think about us, and you love us, and you sent your son to die for us. Lord, that just blows my mind. I pray, God, that we get a glimpse of your love, your character, your holiness, God, today. Would you anoint me in my mind and my heart, God, to communicate your truth with, with um, conviction and passion. We just love you, and we together uh, want to learn learn of your nature. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So last week, um, we said that we were starting this, uh, this short little mini-series, I guess, uh, on who we are as a church. What does the church look like as we gather? What are we doing here in San Francisco? And we called it This Is Reality. So we're just taking two weeks and we're looking at what who we are as a church, and I think it's good to stop and talk about our values and our mission as the church, as a church, a local expression of God's church in San Francisco. I mean, why are we here, why are you here, and what are we doing here together? And last week we started by saying that we are a theological community. We are a community that wants to be centered around God, that is a community that studies God and learns God, and worships God, and prays to God. When we gather, we want to be a people who study and experience the nature of God together. We want to be a God-centered community, a community where God is at the center of all we do. A, and we said, we use this word, a theocentric community, a community wrapped around God, not a anthropocentric community, not a community about us and our needs, not, not centered around man, and man's needs, and man's problems, and man's personalities. We don't want to be a church that's about a pastor, or pastors, or a band, or a movement, or a cause, or an agenda, nothing like that. We want to be a church about God. Now, that sounds easy, and fun, and good, and you're like, oh, that's good. Doesn't every church want that? Yes, but it's very, very difficult, because we are by nature anthropocentric. We are by nature bent inward towards ourselves, all about us. The, the true essence of all sin is this, and the, the, the reason why our society is so fragmented and destroyed is because everyone's self-centered. Everyone is centered around ourselves. We want everything to be catered for us. Advertisers know this. If you're in advertising, you know this. All ads are just geared toward what you want, and it's all about you. I mean, I watch commercials. I was on vacations last week, and I was watching television, and and I don't have a TV at home, so I'm just like flipping through channels, and as the shows get later, the commercials get more stupid. <laughs> but I find myself wanting them. Like all these weird things that take out stains and like um, let, make your hair grow back, and I'm like, I 
I need that. I didn't think I needed that, but I really, like every commercial creates this hell, shows you their product as Messiah, and then heaven at the end. Um, Febreze commercials always get me like this because I don't like smelly things. I like smelly good things. So they create this smelly hell, and you don't want a smelly hell. And I'm like, I don't want a smelly hell. Like, but if you use Febreze, you're saved from smelly hell. I'm like, I need Febreze. And there's, this is what happens in commercials. This is what happens in advertising because we're self-centered. Now, if we stop being self-centered, ads wouldn't work on us anymore. But we are. And it knows it. And the, the ads know that. But the people of God are different. The people of God are to be a community that's not around us. That's not centered around us, but to be centered around God, where God is the center. And that's always been the case with the people of God. Since the very beginning, God has called out a people to be around him. And when God called out a small but special nation to worship him and follow him, God was to be in the center. And when God saved this little nation from slavery in Egypt and in bondage during the Exodus, it was so that they can go up and worship God. And that's what Moses said to Pharaoh, let my people go so that we may go up and worship God. God freed them from bondage so that they can worship him and be centered around God so they can go up and be a community where God is in the center. So the tabernacle that God uh, prescribed reflected this, the temple reflected this of the Old Testament, feasts and festivals of the Old Testament reflected God in the center and everyone remembering what God had done. And at the end, the final scene in Revelation where there are people from every nation, every nation's represented, from every tribe, tongue, and nation centered around the throne of God, around the throne of God, worshiping God with all these gnarly looking angels and elders and all these people with one voice worshiping God, God in the center and the people of God around worshiping. And today we are a church, we're a people in San Francisco that live in between these two times. We are not in the Old Testament, but we're not in the book of Revelation yet. We're in between the times, so we are to be a community still centered around God, a God-centered community. Nothing else is to take that center stage, nothing. And because God, the Father, sent and has glorified God, the Son, Jesus, and because God, the Spirit, testifies and magnifies God, the Son, Jesus, we are to be a community that worships and honors Jesus. This is Jesus' church. Ephesians 5 says that he bought this church with his blood. It's his bride. It's his church, and he died for it. So this is not my church. This is not Tarek's church. This isn't reality's church. This isn't San Francisco's church. This is God's church. This is Jesus' church that he bought, that he purchased, that he paid for. And we are this church, this blood-purchased, Christ-cleansed, body of Christ, bride of Christ. So our gatherings on Sunday, when we gather on Sundays like this, our, our, our goal is, our whole aim as we gather together in this large assembly like this, we, our, our aim and our goal is to attempt to exemplify this Christ-centeredness. When we prayed, we have uh, morning prayer at 9.15, and you could join us anytime you want to wake up early and come pray with us. We pray for this service and the noon service. We pray that Christ would be the center of everything that we do. We pray that when people leave, they don't leave with going, oh, the this, or oh, the that, or oh, did you remember this? They, they leave going, Jesus. Like, Jesus is, is like dripping from their lips, like, oh my gosh, Jesus is so good. And that's what we want people to leave with. We want to be, these, these Sunday mornings, we want them to be when we gather around, we pray, and we learn, and we worship Jesus. But 
is that all the church is supposed to be? Is the church supposed to be only just this church that just gathers around Jesus and nothing else on a Sunday morning? You might think, but what about the poor? And what about the marginalized? And what about the sick? And what about the lost and broken and needy and those who are treated unjustly and the rebel and the hell-bent heathen and the self-righteous conservative? What about all those people? Do we just leave them out? Like, we gather, and if they want to come, they better get here at, you know, 10 or noon. If they come to the 10, they better get there early or they don't get a seat. It's just up to them. Like, how do we do that? Are we just a community that goes, hey, just, hey, if you want to worship Jesus, get to church on Sunday. That's all we got to say. We're only this community that just gathers like this. Now, if we are the church gathered around Jesus, does that mean that we have no regard for other people? By no means. See, we can't just be a church that's just gathered around Jesus. There's a great danger in just being a theological community. There's a great danger in just gathering here on a Sunday morning, and that's it. You're like, well, um, do you believe in Christ? Yes, I go to church Sunday morning. That is not the full expression of the church. We can't just be a theological university or community. If we become a community that is just concerned about gathering around God in worship and learning and praying, when we gather, we, every, our whole church existence, our whole, our whole like, um, uh, Christian experience is just coming to church on Sunday or just coming to church on Wednesday and then going to the church every single night of the week, if it's just that, you'll only last in this city maybe two years at best or any city actually. You live in any major city, you can only last there for a couple years if it's all about the church experience. This is why. You'll begin to become, we will begin to become as a church, and this is one of the things I want to prevent as we begin this church. I don't want to become a Christian ghetto. I don't want to become a Christian subculture. That like your whole existence as a Christian just takes place on Sunday mornings. You're like, I just want to be around the church all the time. We don't want to do that, and this is why. Because one day you're going to wake up and you're going to say to yourself, this city has way too many festivals where people get drunk and naked. And I'm tired of it. Or this city is a hard place to raise a wholesome family. Or this city smells too much like this mixture of urine and um, pot. <laughs> I mean, it's just too much for me. I can't handle it anymore. I need clean. I need holy I need to be holy. I'm around the church all the time. There's holy people all the time. I just need to be around holy people all the time. And you're going to wake up one day and you're like, you know what? I just can't do this anymore. This city's too godless for me. And I'm moving to a place where more people think like me and have stuff that's convenient for me and is safe for me and I'm out of here. This is why we must be a, a, a theological community but also a missional and relational community. We have to see our life in, in, in San Francisco, wherever you live, as being on mission in that place. God sent you there. So the three things that we value as reality is that we're a theological community, but not just a theological community. We want to be a missional community and a relational community. We want everybody, everyone who, who like calls this place their church is a, a member of this church. You've been saved by Jesus. You've come to trust in Christ and you, you call this your local church, to be on mission and in relationship as we're a theological community. And there's, there's no greater scripture that has formed my heart around these values than what Jesus does in Mark chapter 3. We read it. Let me read it to you again. Mark chapter 3. We kind of see this whole thing playing out. 
Mark chapter 3, verse 13, Jesus is calling disciples to himself. And it says that he went up on a mountain, and mountain is really, really key because all huge revelatory acts in the Bible happen on mountains. So he calls um, these 12 to a mountain, and he called them to him. Notice that he called them to himself. Those whom he desired, he chose them, and they might come to him. And then it says he appointed 12. Remember, appointed, we're going to come back to that. He appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him. He wanted them with him. They're like, Jesus like, hey, I want you with me. You, these 12 disciples, I want you living with me. I want you being with me for three years. I want you to be around me. And I'm going to, that he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. Now, all that Jesus is doing here in calling 12 disciples to himself to be with him, to follow him, to learn from him, and ultimately to send them out is rooted in the very nature of God himself. Jesus wasn't just making up some grassroots formula on how to take his message to the world. This is actually rooted in his very nature as God. Let me explain. God is first a community that exists in relationship. God is first a community that exists in relationship, and God is a missionary God He's a missional God. So God exists in relationship, but he's also a missionary God, a missional God. First of all, a relational God. This is the Trinity. Now, I know almost all of you understand the Trinity, but bear with me as I try to explain the Trinity. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the blessed three in one. Now, the Christian view of the Trinity, though I was kind of joking before, it's a very daunting thing to think about. It's head spinning. It goes something like this. This is the Christian doctrine of the Trinity. The Christian faith affirms that there is one and only one God, eternally existing while fully and simultaneously expressed in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each member of the Godhead is equally God. Each is eternally God, and each is fully God. There are not three gods, but three persons in one Godhead. Each person is equal in essence, and each possesses fully the identically same and eternal divine nature. Yet, each is also an internal, eternal and distinct personal expression of that one undivided divine nature. So I hope that clears everything up now, okay? So we can move on. You guys get it now? You guys like, yeah, I got the Trinity down now. Thank you very, very much. Okay, C.S. Lewis is a little bit more romantic when he talks about the Trinity, he says that the Trinity is a divine dance. And this is what he means by that. He says this in Mere Christianity. God is not a static thing, not even a person really, but a dynamic, pulsating activity, a life, almost a kind of a drama, almost, if you not think me irreverent, a kind of dance. Now, why does C.S. Lewis call the Trinity a kind of dance? Why is, why, is, why is the Trinity really best expressed as a dance? Because God is not a static being. See, the nature of self-centeredness is being static, and everything revolves around you. A self-centered life is a stationary, static life. You stay in the center, and you want everything to come to you, everything to be orbiting around you, everything to make room for you. But God to whom all glory is due, is not even static. He exists in dynamic, interpersonal relationship. God exists in this dynamic, 
as C.S. Lewis calls it, this pulsating activity, a life, a kind of a drama, this, this very dynamic activity, this dynamic dance the Holy, the Holy Spirit, the Son, and the Father are in with each other. Another theologian by the name of uh, Cornelius Plantinga says, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit glorify each other. Self-giving love is the dynamic currency of the Trinitarian life of God. Three persons within God exalt, commune with, and defer to one another. Each harbors at the, the others at the center of his being in, in constant movement of overture and acceptance. Each person envelops and encircles the others. So, creation is neither a necessity nor an accident. Do you know what this means? That, that God is this interpersonal dynamic relationship? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three yet one. You know what this means? It means that God didn't create us so that he can get from us mutual love and glorification. Some people think that. Why did God create humanity? Why, because he just needs someone to love him? Needs someone to worship him? Are we around God because God is so egocentric that he's like, has to be in the center and then we all have to worship him so he made us so we can worship him? No, that's not the case because God was already giving and receiving love and glorification before he ever created the world then why would God do it? To share love and glorification. To share it, not to just get it, but to share it. The uh, sixth century theologian by the name of Dionysius says, love does not permit the lover to rest in himself. It draws him out of himself so that he may be entirely in the beloved. Isn't this the nature of true biblical love that it gives Love does not permit the lover to just, just, I love me. That's not real, true love. Loving yourself isn't love. Going out of yourself sacrificially is love. Jesus said that no greater love has anyone that, than me that I lay my life down for you. This is what love does. So God is both missional and relational. Love goes out. The relationship of God makes room for the mission of God. So God is in this this interpersonal relationship. He's a relational God, but because he's his relationship, he makes room for us in the universe. He's also on mission to bring us in. He exists in relationship and is missional and that his love goes out. And despite our rebellion, our continued rebellion, he wants to bring us into the life of God. God wants us to I mean, get this, God wants, God of the universe wants us to be brought into the life and the dynamic dance of God. He wants us in to experience that love and mutual affection. And this is what Jesus' prayer was in John 17. When Jesus prayed in John 17, this is exactly how he prayed. In John 17, at the end, when Jesus spent three years with his disciples, at the end when he's praying for them, and then in this prayer, he's praying for us as well. John 17, it says in verse 18, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Speaking of his disciples. He's praying to the Father. You see that relationship there? He's praying to the Father. As you sent me into the world to go and rescue us, to bring us into the life of God, you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. I do not ask for those only, listen to this, but for also those who will believe in me through their word. Who's that? You and me. That they may be all one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be, become perfectly one 
so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. The Son was sent by God the Father because God loves us, and God loves the Son, and he's bringing us into the life of God, the divine dance of God. God existing in loving relationship and making room for us, sharing that love, and do the divine nature of the love the Father sends the Son so that we can co- draw near to God. We're invited to the life of God. But not just that, but Jesus also sends us out. So let me bring this all down, because I know that was all like all way out there and stuff. You're like, whoa, you're just tripping out by yourself because no one's with you now. <laughs> let me just try to bring this down so you guys now can participate mentally with me. Listen, what this simply means is this. Because God is relational, you and I are to be relational. We were made in the image of God. We are image bearers of God. So because God is relational, you and I are to be relational beings. Because God is a missionary God and missional, as we're brought into that divine dance, we're brought into the life of God, we are to be on mission. We're to be missional people. Okay, so as we're centered around God, as we're brought in, if you just think of like this, I don't know, vacuum that like sucks us into the life of God, brought, we're brought into the life of God to worship God, and then because we're brought into the heart of God, near to his heart, we're naturally sent out. So it has both a centripetal and centrifugal force. It brings us in and then sends us out. That's what God does. So the more that we're, we love God and drawn into the heart of God, the more that we're going to walk around our city and be broken for people who are broken. The more that we're going to see our city not be jaded, but our hearts are going to be bleeding for people to be saved, to be fed, to be clothed, to be brought to, to, be brought to justice or bring justice to their lives. We're going to want that so deeply because that's the heart of God. And some people try to short circuit that and go straight to helping people, but that, your love runs out then. You have no fount then. It's not until you're brought into the life of God that you're then sent out on mission. So these two things, let's just talk about these two things. What does it mean to be missional as a community, especially here at Reality? And what do we mean by being relational? So let's just walk through those two things pretty quickly. Missional looks like this. To be missional is, number one, is to be aware of and concerned about what God is doing in the world around us. And two, to endeavor to be directly and daily involved in that. See, mission wasn't created for the church. You and I, the church, was created to be on God's mission. This assumes that you believe God is doing something in our city right now. Like, you have to begin to believe that God is actively involved in this city and in this world. When you walk around the city, when you go to school or work or to the coffee house or whatever you do, do you believe that God is deeply concerned about San Francisco, that he's deeply concerned about the Bay Area or the city that you live in, that he's deeply concerned, and not just that, but the world. God is on mission in the world. Now, what is God's mission? First of all, it's to create a world where his divine love was shared with his creation. That was the first intent of his mission, to share, to to bring us into the life of God. He didn't create the world because he needs little boys and girls to love him that already existed in in the Trinity. He created us to share it. But there is this little thing called the fall in the book of Genesis. 
when our first parents, Adam and Eve, rebelled in the garden, and the shalom, which is this really rich, dynamic Hebrew word for the peace of God, when that was broken and began to unravel everywhere, the mission of God then was to restore and to redeem people back into relationship with himself, back into divine dance of God, and bring everything to a consummated end when God would restore it all and make a new heaven and a new earth. And this time it wouldn't be in a garden, it would be in a city the city of God at the end of the Bible. Okay, so that's the grand mission of God. Now, the way that that takes place today is this, that you and I are sent like Jesus was sent. Jesus prayed that we would, we, he would send us the way that the Father sent him, and he also said that I call you to myself, that I could send you out to preach. So there's two very practical ways that we are to be on mission in life or to be missional in our existence. Number one is incarnation, and number two is proclamation. We need to be incarnational and also proclamational. I don't know if that's a word, but I just made it up, okay? So we have to be, to incarnate the gospel and also to proclaim the gospel. See, the incarnation is exactly what Jesus did in becoming flesh. Jesus was the visible and tangible demonstration of the love and the passion and the mercy and the sacrifice and even the anger sometimes of God. When Jesus would overturn the tax, the, 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 money changers tables in the temple when they were robbing people when they were trying to give to god jesus got angry at those people and turned over tables and made a whip i mean that's pretty gnarly when god makes a whip it's not a good sign and so jesus expresses incarnates the life of god so the church you and i we are to be a visible expression of the life of god and you know what we have to repent because i know sometimes that we're not we're not this visible, visible expression of the life of God. And how did Jesus become incarnate? He plunged himself into our world. world. He came into our darkness. He experienced the things of this life. He sympathized with us and empathized with us. He plunged himself. There's this really good picture at the baptism of Jesus. When Jesus walks up to be baptized at the beginning of the book of Mark, he walks up to be baptized, and John the Baptist is there, and he's baptizing all these people. It says all of the region was out, and watching John the Baptist, this crazy prophet who wore camel's hair and ate locusts and wild honey, this crazy prophet who's preaching to repent, everyone needs to repent, and get baptized. And so he's baptizing them in this water for the repentance of sin. So there's this, like, imagery there where all these people go into the river dirty, and they come out clean. They repent. And then Jesus stands right in the river and says, John, baptize me. And if you step back and you actually look at what's really going on, here's all these people being baptized. All of their filth is in this water, spiritually, so to speak. And Jesus steps right in the middle of it and immerses himself into their mess. This is the incarnation. Jesus plunges himself into our mess. What does it look like that we become incarnational in our, in, in our lives? We have to plunge our lives into the life of the city. We have to plunge our lives into the life of people. We need to plunge our lives into the life of San Francisco. This is exactly what Jesus did. In Mark chapter 10, verse 45, it says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So this is what this means. Let me just break this down to you. If you live in this city or around this city, let me, let me tell you what this means. 
This means in the grand scheme of things, this city, you're not here in this city to build your resume, to build your portfolio, to get your degree or to launch your creative career or to experience life in your 20s or your 30s or your 50s or whatever. This is not what the city is to be for those who are bought and saved by Jesus. All that is the very opposite of incarnation. No wonder there's not that many long-standing gospel voices in San Francisco because most Christians move here after, move out of here after two years. Most Christians in San Francisco care about two things when they move to the city, your job and your friends, and if you could survive here for two years. And that's normally how people think when they're believers and they move into San Francisco. They enjoy it while they can. They enjoy all the things that San Francisco has to offer, and they get out of here with really good stories. And the long-standing voices of San Francisco are people who live here and care about things like streets and bike lanes and schools and recycling and neighborhoods and families and homeless and sex trafficking that's happening all around us. And maybe not all of those things, but at least one of them. To be a person a believer on mission in San Francisco is to really care about the city first. To go, I'm not here in this city. Like Jesus, why did he become incarnational to, to come down in this earth, not to be served, but to serve? Why are you in this city? Not to be served, but to serve. If we just poured out our life in service in this city, to be missional as a church in San Francisco we have to be plunged into the life of God and let God plunge us into the life of the city to embody the gospel in the city. When we're willing to enter into people's worlds, their suffering, their pain, their joy, their creativity, all to represent what Christ has done for us. I mean, we want to be a part of relieving suffering in this world. We want to be a part of that. But number two, not only are we incarnational, but we have to proclaim the gospel as well communicating and embodying the message of the gospel in our culture. We have to be people that open our mouths and actually say what the gospel is. That we're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Not by works, not by going to church, not by saying that we do all the right things. Not by being religious. We're not calling people to be religious. We call people to believe in Jesus. And we can't be a church that abandons the proclamation of the gospel or the work of the gospel. The gospel must be word and deed. You and I, the church, have been entrusted with the message and with the mission. The message is the gospel and the mission is God's mission to redeem the world. And we have to be about this. When you start to get this God-centered perspective of living in the Bay Area, it starts to destroy and turn upside down and inside out the common ways in which we are accustomed to think about the Christian life. It constantly forces us to open our eyes to the big picture in the city rather than the shelter of our cozy narcissism of our own small little worlds that we kind of surround ourselves with. See, sometimes we're prone to ask when we lose sight of the mission of God, where does God fit into the story of my life? That's what we ask. Okay, preacher guy, how does, this, how does, the, how does God fit into my life? That's not the mission of God at all. The story of the Bible 
And the story that is impressed upon us when we read the Bible is this. Where does my little life fit into the great story of God's mission? That is the question. How does your small life fit into the grand scheme in the unfolding story of God? I mean, do you see God is doing something around us and the call of the follower of Jesus is to see how, how our lives fit into what God's doing. So let me just come out with it then. I'm going to just tell you, we say this in small groups, I'll just say it to you uh, openly. We want you to live and stay in the Bay Area, in San Francisco. We're not afraid to say that or ashamed to say that. If you don't live in San Francisco, don't be offended. I don't mean to offend you, but you probably shouldn't move here just saying, Okay. We want people to live in this city. We, as a church, we want people to live in the city, to embody the gospel in the city, to live and serve and love the city, to know this city inside and out, and then to love it and speak well of it, and to know what God's doing and like be thankful for what God's doing in this city. And then we want you to get married and raise a family in this city. And even though it's the most expensive city, and it's really difficult to raise a family in this city, to do it for the mission of God. That's just straight up. That's what we, what we, what we really desire to be. Because if we don't really have that heart, all we're saying is, you know, come here, take as much you can from San Francisco, and then go and live wherever you're going to live. That is not a biblical mandate. If you are only here for a couple years, you come here and you're like, how do I pour my life out for the sake of the gospel of God in San Francisco and what God is doing to redeem that place, and then I'll move on to where I'm going. But I didn't go there and just suck from that city for two years. I went and poured my life out for that city in two years, or semester, or however long you're here. See, the problem is, though, when we're so focused on mission, one of the things that's all often left behind is relationship. Relationships are not sacrificed on the altar of mission or theology. Some people could get so concerned about theology and so concerned about mission that they forget relationship. Relationships are the context of mission and the fruit of theology. People ask all the time, um, here, when I'm traveling, whatever, what makes reality, the church, so different? And I'm like, I have no idea how to answer that. I don't really think we are, but I know that there's one thing that I know that we hold to that is rare, that I don't see in a lot of places. We are really intense about relationships. I mean, really intense. To where if we're not best friends, then we're not friends at all. Like, almost like that. We really want to be best friends. Like, when we bring people on staff or close to our, our lives, we really bring them close. I mean, when I, when I first met... Um, some of the pastors at Reality down south, and we moved, my wife and I moved there to be just a part of this family. They were, I'd never had brothers before, and they would barge in uh, in my house all the time, the most inopportune times that I don't really want to bring up right now, but, um, and they just brought me into their life. I mean, they came over to my house, and they looked in my fridge, and they sat on my couch, and they ate my food. My wife would be cooking, and they'd walk over and like grab a fork and start eating. I'm like, that's my food, and they're like, it's our food. <laughs> and it wasn't like creepy though. It wasn't like, you know, like the, it wasn't weird. It was, it was family. And this is something that we're really, really concerned about, that we really care about, that we try to hold really tightly is relationship. 
There's a quote that I read that, that I think might speak to this and might not, but I, I really, I, I want to read it. It's, it's talking about the, the, the history of Christianity. And it said, historians of religion like to say that Christianity was born in the Middle East as a religion. It moved to Greece and became a philosophy. It journeyed to Rome and became a legal system, spread through Europe as a culture, and when it came and migrated to America, Christianity became big business. And this is, I think this is very, very true. The, the community of God is to be first relational. God as a community was first a relationship. God has invited us into relationship. When it says that Jesus died for our sins, it's not that, oh, he died for your sins so you don't have to have any guilt anymore and you can like do all that you want now. He removed your sins so you can get to God because you can't get to God with your sins. God is too holy. Jesus died to remove your sins so that you can get to God. It's all about relationship. And we need to be a relational group of people. We need to be a relational church. I know this is hard. As a church, we've grown very wide really fast, and we know that. It's one, of our, it's one of the things that we know right away. As a church, we started, we thought we started as a small group and be a small group and be this like really cool little community in San Francisco and know everyone and like have dinner at each other's houses and like be this really organic, fun little group of people and like grow from there. That's what we thought. But no, we hit and then it just grew out like this and now we don't know half the people that serve, half the people that like are coming and we don't really like it. So one or two things can happen. We just like everybody leave, 15 people get to stay, small little group. I mean, put your, put your uh, write a resume, we'll choose 15 people and we'll do the same with 15 people. We could do that or we go, listen everyone, all of you need to get into small groups of people. And you guys need to be open, radically open. Not just in community groups, because we have those and you guys should be a part of those, but inviting people over. Like, what, why don't you guys, not in a weird way, but invite people over, like that you meet over your house for dinner. Like, but my house is like small and messy. Well, clean it and make a dinner, make a meal for somebody. <laughs> and invite them over. Or invite them out to lunch afterwards. Do something like that. Get in and don't be afraid when, you know, this happens. I, I know that people are weird. This is, what the, this is what the community of God does. God takes people that are natural enemies, like NorCal, SoCal, you know, and like brings them together to worship Jesus. And that's what God does. He takes people of different races, different like classes, different backgrounds, and he makes them one people. When it says there that Jesus called or appointed 12, that word appointed means he made 12. Jesus made a new community of people. He made something out of nothing. These were 12 guys that had nothing in common that were natural enemies, and he made them into a community. This is what God does. We need to be intensely relational church. That means we welcome people. It means we love people. That means, and, I, and I've shared this quote with you before, we want to be a people that share their tables with everyone but their beds with no one. This is exactly what was said of the first, the early church. This was their accusation, like they're a weird group of people. They share their tables with everyone. They're the most hospitable group of people, but they share their beds with no one. They're weird. They're the most liberal people with their stuff and the most conservative people with their bodies. This doesn't make any sense. And this doesn't really make sense in this city as well. But this is what the church is to be, to be radically intimate and radically open at the same time. To be radically liberal with our love and giving, but radically conservative with our bodies. Now this takes tremendous sacrifice. Where do you get the motivation to live on mission? 
I mean, where do you get the motivation to live on mission? This, this could be a brutal city. There's days where I love this city, and there's days when I get towed and I hate this city. It's, it could be a brutal, brutal place where you get, where do you get the motivation to risk yourself relationally? I mean, where people can potentially destroy you relationally. I mean, where do you get the motivation to do that? I mean, think about it. Why don't you live missionally? And why aren't you, why are you so afraid of new, deep relationships? A lot of it has to do with your selfishness. A lot of it has to do with your selfishness because it, that takes too much time, too much effort, too much energy, too much risk. It's a sacrifice to your comfort to live on mission. It could mean God has you live in this city your whole life and raise a family in the most expensive places in the country. And it's a sacrifice to be relational. Because, I mean, when you're relational, you open up your lives to relationships and it makes you vulnerable to hurt. I mean, people will hurt you. People at this church or the church that you're going to will hurt you. You know why? Because there's a lot of recovering sinners in this room that God, by his spirit, is putting back together and making more like Jesus. And that takes time. And so there it will be deep relational hurt. I know that that will happen. But we are given the resources in Scripture to deal with that. But the church is also messy, and relationships are messy. I mean, where do we get the power to carry out the mission of God and God's relationship? May I suggest to you Jesus. We look to Jesus. The mission of God entailed that Jesus became human, took on human flesh, draped himself in humanity, and was rejected by the very people he created. He loved, and he came to rescue God, his love for us made him vulnerable, and we killed him. I mean, what is it to be vulnerable? What does it mean to be vulnerable? How do you open your arms to someone? I mean, that's what true vulnerability is, isn't it? I mean, have you ever went for a hug and then went like this to somebody? You know how vulnerable you are when you do like, they could stab you, they could tickle you. I mean, they could do anything. (laughs) I mean, you become very vulnerable when you walk up to somebody like, Hug, I mean, it's way easier to go, hey, what's up? Get in, get in right here. It's way easier, not as vulnerable, because you still have this hand to react to whatever. But when you go up like this, that's true vulnerability. They can do, they could destroy you like that. Or they can leave you hanging. You're like, you know, I mean, what? It, it's true vulnerability to open up your hands that way. Jesus Christ on the cross opened his hands to us. They were nailed open for us true vulnerability to bring us into relationship his death the death of christ was a sacrifice to bring you and i in relationship with god and the main point of jesus death was to remove your sins that you and i can get to god in relationship jesus is how we live missionally and relationally without pretense without strings He is our motivation to live on mission, to pour our lives out. He is our motivation to be relationally vulnerable to people. And he's the one that picks our hearts up when it's been broken. He's the one that heals wounds between two people who love God but have made really bad mistakes together. It's him. And we need and we must look to Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we confess to you that the things that we want seem really utopian, really wonderful, but they're so practically difficult to work out because people are weird, Lord. We are weird, and we need to be saved by you. 
I pray for those that have not really been open and vulnerable, maybe to their own family, to people that have hurt them, to this church. I pray, God, that our motivation would become from you who made yourself vulnerable for us. God, would you be more beautiful to us? I mean, when we really think about people that have hurt us and we look to you, I mean, the people that you came to die for killed you. May you become a greater savior, a greater lover. And I pray, God, that you would bring people into that divine dance today, that people would draw near to God. We worship you and we adore you and we love you. In Jesus' name.